Welcome to the Saxophone History Podcast, a thoughtful, researched, and slightly irreverent look at the history of our instrument. I'm your host, Andrew D. Meyer. Welcome, everyone. This episode, we're looking at the life and times of Joe Henderson. I think Joe Henderson is an important saxophonist to take a closer look at for two main reasons. The first, uh, his playing, speaks for itself. He had an incredible style that was highly influential, contributed much to the standard repertoire, and left a rich recorded legacy. The second reason is that there really isn't a comprehensive biography on his life and times available. There's an excellent doctoral dissertation titled Joe Henderson, A Biographical Study of His Life and Career by Joel Jeffrey Harris, which will be a major source for this podcast. But I feel like most sort of general jazz fans aren't, uh, aren't really wading through doctoral dissertations when they're curious about the lives of their favorite players. It's really surprising to me that no one has written a biography on Joe for, for sort of like the general reader in an age when like every sideman and hanger-on uh, has like a book or two written about their lives. In Scott DeVoe and Gary Giddens' seminal textbook, Jazz, Henderson's name is only mentioned twice. Once in reference to the saxophonist of hard bop groups overtaking the prominence of trumpet players in the 1960s and once in reference to a sort of neoclassical period in jazz, which started in the 1980s, during which musicians asserted that in order for jazz to sort of like be correct, it had to follow certain rules about swing and harmony. And I don't know, it it just seems weird to me to only mention Joe in in a book of that size and important importance in these two like really specific and and frankly just kind of off-putting contexts. On the National Endowment for the Arts website, he's described as, quote, one of the more distinctive tenor saxophone voices to have emerged during the 1960s. Joe Henderson's rich tone and strong sense of rhythm influenced scores of tenor saxophonists who followed him, unquote. So let's get into it. Joe Henderson was born April 24th, 1937 in Lima, Ohio. Lima is sort of in the middle of nowhere, farming land in northwest Ohio. It's pretty much equidistant from Dayton, Columbus, Toledo, and Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now, being from a more populated part of Ohio myself, I've always considered Lima to be a place where nothing happens. And I was pretty surprised to see that Joe was from there. I guess it's a bit like uh, George Orwell's thing, like no one hates the poor, like the slightly less poor, right? So I'm from a slightly less boring place, so I really hate boring places. (laughs) Anyway, it turns out that lots of things happened in Lima. Um, John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil operated the largest oil field in the nation in Lima for about a decade. And this money brought in lots of funding for the arts. Uh, it, It led to the building of a rather impressive opera house in 1882 and a movie theater in 1907. Lima became a major manufacturer of steam engines and military vehicles, and as a result, the city was serviced by eight railroad companies in 1930. 
Also in the 1930s, Lima experienced a wave of crime, including the imprisonment and violent jailbreak of John Dillinger, as well as multiple heists committed by the Brady Gang. I guess all of this is to say that Lima was a much more happening place around the time that Joe Henderson was born than it is today. Born the son of a steelworker and a housewife, Joe Henderson was one of either 14 or 15 children. I've seen both numbers in different accounts of his childhood, and I suppose that it's possible that his parents like, didn't even know how many kids they had. Once you get past 10, it's probably pretty hard to keep track of them, I imagine. Uh, Joe was the third youngest of these children, and all joking aside, it seems that Joe's parents, who had relocated from Georgia to Ohio, were very dedicated and involved parents who wanted their children to receive the best educations possible. Joe was later quoted saying, quote, What got me started on the right track was the information that I gathered from being around two great parents. That's been largely responsible for my success, unquote. Though Henderson's parents were not particularly musical, his two younger siblings did find success in music as well. Phyllis McGee, his younger, younger sister, became a nightclub singer, and his younger brother, Leon Henderson, was also a tenor saxophonist, recording for Blue Note in the 60s with Kenny Cox and the Contemporary Jazz Quintet. It's interesting to me that the last three children of the family all went into music when the previous 11 or 12 showed no interest. Henderson wanted to play the drums, but following a successful musical aptitude test at his school, he was given a C melody saxophone. I don't know if you guys had uh, musical aptitude tests when you were thinking about playing an instrument. I, I sort of vaguely remember that kind of thing. I think maybe like they gave you a couple different instruments and just kind of saw like if you could make a sound on one or maybe uh, maybe also like they played a pitch and and wanted to see if you could like sing it back to them. I think it's also kind of funny that they uh, that they gave him a C melody saxophone. So he switches to tenor pretty shortly thereafter and uh, he seems to be one of those kids for whom music just makes sense. A lot of accounts of his teen years say that he was quickly writing and arranging tunes for his high school band and other groups in the area. His older brother, Troy, had a large record collection and was a jazz fan. About the influence of his brother's musical tastes on his development, Henderson said, quote, I remember one of my brothers, in particular, who is a scientist, had this jazz at the Philharmonic Collection. He was a jazz buff, and it was very important and good for me to have been around that early on, because before I started to play the saxophone, I knew what the saxophone was supposed to sound like. I heard a bunch of people like Lester Young, Illinois Jacquette, Coleman Hawkins, and Wardell Gray. Unquote. Joe dedicated his first Blue Note recording, page one, to his brother as thanks for the inspiration. There really isn't a great deal of detail available about what Henderson was studying early on in his development, other than uh, a quote from Kenny Dorham suggesting that he studied piano with Richard Patterson and Don Hurlis, and that he was turned on to Stan Getz, Lester Young, Dexter Gordon, Charlie Parker, and Lee Konitz by a local drummer named John Jarrett. Uh, one of his piano teachers, Hurlis, is known to have taught Henderson Charlie Parker solos at half speed so that the budding saxophonist could absorb them. 
In this absence of, of detail of like what he was really up to, I think it's important to acknowledge that music education in public schools was, was probably much more robust in the mid 20th century than it is today. I'm thinking about programs like the Ford Foundation's Composers in Residence program, which hired young composers simply to write for public school band and orchestra programs in the late uh, 50s and 60s with no other teaching or administrative duties. This program in particular saw composers such as Philip Glass, Arthur Frackenpole, and Robert Muczynski installed in public schools large and small across the nation. That's, that's pretty remarkable, really. Like, the government just paid these composers to just write pieces for, for public schools. And, and this seems to fit with Henderson's own description of the music he was exposed to in high school. He said, quote, I started playing in high school bands, which didn't play bebop, and thus got a full appreciation of other kinds of music, classical and marches. I liked Bartok and Stravinsky and Schoenberg instantly. Nobody had to prepare me for that. I just liked that stuff. It tended to be a little further out, a little less conventional. And this predated me having heard Ornette Coleman by at least 10 years. I was into an unconventional approach to sound. And so when people like Ornette and Eric Dolphy showed up on the scene, they didn't appear to be that unusual or offensive, unquote. The city of Lima had a pretty active music scene. In the 1950s, the city had a population of around 50,000 and was relatively prosperous due to the strong industrial manufacturing sector. It's also situated as a logical stopover point for traveling bands heading to Detroit, Chicago, Columbus, or Cleveland. Stan Kenton and Duke Ellington are known to have performed in Lima, and Henderson subbed for one of the saxophonists from Lionel Hampton's big band at age 14 when the regular player fell ill. On that date, he would have played in the section with Johnny Griffin, and he would have been sitting in front of trumpeters Art Farmer, Quincy Jones, and Clifford Brown. Uh, about that experience, Henderson said, quote, All of a sudden, I'm looking at this music, watching these notes fly by. I'll never forget that. I mean, these notes were just flying by so fast. I thought, how do these guys read so fast? It took me a few years to get that skill together where I could handle that a little bit. This guy named Bobby Platter, who later played with Lionel's band at that time, I was sitting to his right. Naturally, he knew the book and he knew that I was lost, so he pointed out where we were and, and kept me on track, unquote. I just like that little story of like, you know, 14-year-old Joe Henderson sitting in with this, this killing band and the, and the guy next to him, you know, probably recognizes a little bit of himself in, him, in this kid and is like, you know, helping him out. I think we all probably had, you know, someone like that that helped us and it's, uh, it's kind of a nice story. Also at the age of 14, Henderson wrote Record a May. Composition became an important practice for the saxophonist. As he played more around the area as a young man, he wrote more and more for the groups he was playing with. He eventually started playing strip clubs in the Lima era, area and said, quote, while I was playing gigs later on in strip joints, I learned more about how jazz tunes are put together. I got more involved and we started playing my things on gigs and for dancers and other acts. I've written all kinds of things since then. Marches while I was in the army, commercial blues, whatever would fit the occasion, unquote. It's kind of weird that he uh, associates like playing in strip clubs with learning how jazz tunes are put together. I, I don't really get that, but whatever. 
at this time, Henderson also became a regular performer at a local venue called Oliver's. This was an upscale, whites-only venue that hired black entertainers from Chicago and Detroit. All of the music was performed by ear with no charts. And Henderson eventually came to be part of the house band, backing all these acts as they came through. After high school, he enrolled at Kentucky State College to study music, but transferred to Wayne State, Detroit after one year. He studied at Wayne State from 1957 to 1959. And while he was there, he was classmates with Yusuf Latif and Curtis Fuller. Curtis Fuller and Joe Henderson were roommates for, for a little while. And during this time, he also studied with pianist and composer Barry Harris, who was only about eight years older than him. Henderson's transcripts from Wayne State say that he studied instrumental music. And a 1993 article from Jazz Educators Journal says that he studied music education. Uh, he apparently studied flute and string bass and began formal studies of music theory, as one would expect. Uh, during this time, he was also studying with Larry Teal, who didn't teach at Wayne State, but did teach at his own place, uh, which was called the Teal School of Music. It's not surprising that Henderson developed such a high standard of technique after working with Larry Teal for three years. While studying in Detroit, Henderson was soaking in all that the, the really super active Detroit jazz scene had to offer. Many major jazz icons came through, and Henderson regularly saw the likes of Sonny Stitt, Donald Byrd, Pepper Adams, Paul Chambers, Louis Hayes, Blue Mitchell, Thad Jones, and Elvin Jones. Uh, he had a, a rather funny encounter with John Coltrane, as described by Michael Koskuna. Quote, Joe was at this guy's house and Coltrane came over. Coltrane was traveling with Miles at the time or something. And they said, you know, John Coltrane's coming over. And Joe said, I didn't really have any fully formed idea about who John Coltrane was or what he was about. He said, everybody at the apartment was just mortified because I just shrugged and treated him with complete indifference. Everyone else was bowing down to him as a god. I really had no idea what his playing was like or who he was or anything." Unquote. Of all the players that Henderson encountered, either in person or on record, Charlie Parker was his main influence at the beginning of his time in Detroit. I mean, obviously it wasn't John Coltrane, right? So this was, uh, this was to change shortly as the young tenor player moved away from bebop uh, and uh, kind of fell into the influence of Ornette Coleman. In interviews, Henderson explains how he was into Ornette's playing, but the majority of the other players in the scene in Detroit were decidedly not. And this unwillingness to accept Ornette's playing sort of caused Henderson to break with those players a bit and, uh, and move a little bit away from bebop. During this time, Henderson was briefly married to a dancer named Etta Cummings, but it just, just didn't work out. It sounds to me like the classic story of two performers in a relationship, you know, like the extreme hours and the travel and, and just like the weird lifestyle can just, you know, make it impossible to stay together. One of his final milestones before leaving Detroit was a commission from an organization called UNAC, which was a bit like the NAACP. And this was to write a work for 10 members of the Detroit Symphony, as well as Jimmy Wilkins Dance Band, and it was to be titled uh, Swing and Strings. 
I think it really speaks volumes about Henderson's compositional abilities and his reputation at the time that he was able to land a commission like that at such a young age. Henderson never graduated from Wayne State, though he did leave Detroit in August of 1960. The story is that John Coltrane had recommended Henderson to be his replacement when he left Miles Davis's band, but Henderson was drafted at the same time and required to go to Europe for two years of military service, which uh, ultimately left the gig open for Wayne Shorter. <laughs> nice. Henderson doesn't seem to be like the least bit bitter about this turn of events, saying, quote, I don't regret having been in the military. I got a chance to learn French and German and meet Bud Powell, Don Bias, Kenny Clark, and a lot of people who were living over there at the time, unquote. That's pretty interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people would be like, ah, I could have been in Miles Davis's band, but I had to join the fucking army. But he's just like, yeah, whatever. It was cool. I learned French and met Bud Powell. So... <laughs> While he was in the military, Henderson joined a combo that, uh, that did pretty well in some competitions. It's not really clear to me exactly what these competitions were, like whether they were within the army or, or sort of international. I mean, the idea of like international jazz competitions, especially at that time, seems kind of silly. Like who's going to compete with, with America? <laughs> I don't, you know, like where else was jazz really happening? Uh, but his combo does so well that he's offered a job playing bass with a sort of traveling show band called the Rolling Along Show that performed at bases in North America, Alaska, Japan, Korea, and throughout Europe. Henderson did uh, much of the arranging for the group, and he also played bass. And it sounds like like just a little bit of saxophone. Like It sounds like he was mainly playing bass in the group, which is kind of interesting. Henderson was discharged from the Army in 1962 and spent a few months in Maryland before moving to New York in the fall of that year. According to the liner notes from his first album, Page One, he arrived in a sleek black Mercedes and went straight to a party at saxophonist Junior Cook's apartment, where he met Kenny Dorham. Dorham, who was to become a major musical partner, and Henderson went to see Dexter Gordon play the Monday Night Jazz Jamboree at Birdland, where Henderson was asked to sit in. He played a lengthy solo on a bird blues and was given a warm welcome. I'm sure it wasn't as easy as it sounds, but the descriptions of Henderson's like arriving in New York sort of sound like he went to a party, went to Birdland, sat in and sounded great. Everybody loved him and off he went with a great career. <laughs> like obviously it's a little more complicated than that, but that's kind of like how it's portrayed. Henderson played his first official gig in New York with Kenny Dorham on Tuesday, January 15th, 1963, at the Flamboyant Theater. While Dorham was an incredibly important friend and one who would help Joe find a lot of work early on, he was not the saxophonist's only contact in New York. Several of the musicians that Henderson worked with in Detroit had already moved to New York and established budding careers there, including Yusuf Latif, Barry Harris, Elvin Jones, and Curtis Fuller. It's at this time that Henderson's relationship with Blue Note Records began, also because of Joe's association with Kenny Dorham. Dorham asked Henderson to record on his fourth release for Blue Note, Una Mas. The album was recorded April 1st, 1963, and featured Herbie Hancock, Butch Warren, and Tony Williams, alongside Dorham and Henderson, playing three Dorham compositions and one standard. Uh, that was If I Would Ever Leave You. 
Uh, but that tune was uh, was omitted from the original release. Incidentally, Tony Williams was only 17 when he recorded that side. Unamas was not just a successful recording date for Henderson, it became a major springboard for his, uh, for his own career. Upon hearing his playing, Alfred Lyon, who was the co-founder of Blue Note Records, uh, was so impressed that he signed Henderson almost immediately. After only being in New York for approximately five months, Henderson was performing regularly and had signed a recording contract with a major label. Unamas was a great commercial and critical success, with many critics recognizing and praising Henderson's contributions. About the record, Bob Blumenthal said, quote, Unamas also represents the prototype Blue Note afternoon at Rudy Van Gelder's, where new stars are discovered and the groove is so strong that producer Alfred Lyon throws time constraints to the wind and lets the band stretch out, unquote. This is certainly true of the title track from this record, which lasts a little over 15 minutes. A month and a half after recording Unamas, Henderson was hired by Grant Green to play on the guitarist's album Am I Blue. This album, which wasn't really a particularly great commercial or critical success, was enormously important for Henderson in that it would introduce him to still more musicians with whom the saxophonist would work for, for years. In particular, uh, Duke Pearson, who was the album's arranger. Somewhat strangely, criticism of this album, which tended to view it as a bit dull, also insinuated that Henderson was imitating John Coltrane and Sonny Rollins. I don't know how you can imitate both of those saxophone players at the same time. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, in the liner notes for the album, Joe Goldberg wrote that, quote, one can also hear, as is true of most young tenormen, traces of Rollins and Coltrane, unquote. And Jazz Journal called him, uh, quote, an obvious Coltrane follower, unquote. Henderson plays a lot of notes and also has a, a similar sort of serious gravity, I guess you could say, to the ideas that he plays. But I don't really hear similarities to Coltrane. Certainly not in tone, and I don't think in terms of his improvisation either. To my ear, Henderson sounds more like an R&B player on this record than anything. But then again, the music certainly leans that way. And Joe found these criticisms, criticisms to be unfair. And uh, it's something, particularly comparisons with Coltrane and, and Sonny Rollins, that he would struggle with for the rest of his career. Ironically, uh, he later made some of these same kind of comments about younger players, you know, when he was later on in his career, but we'll get to that story later. On June 23rd, 1963, just over two months since his debut at Blue Note, Henderson recorded his first album as a leader, and this one was called Page One. The album, recorded at Van Gelder Studios and produced by Alfred Lyon, featured Kenny Dorham, McCoy Tyner, Butch Warren, and Pete LaRocca. Interestingly, McCoy Tyner is not listed in the album notes, as he had recently signed with Impulse Records along with John Coltrane. Uh, but the, the, cover, the cover lists the other side men and then just says ETC. Joe wrote most of the music for the album, including one of his most well-known tunes, Record of May. As was mentioned earlier, uh, Record of May was penned a little over a decade before it was recorded here, but in a somewhat different style to what was recorded on page one. Henderson described how he, uh, he reworked the melody and rhythm, rhythmic structures of the tune after hearing Stan Getz and Charlie Bird's album, Jazz Samba. Uh, he said, quote, 
The first tune I ever wrote as a teenager was a tune that I later titled Record a May. This was before the bossa nova was introduced to North America by Stan Getz and Charlie Bird. My tune had a kind of generic Latin beat to it without being any specific rhythm like a pachanga or bolero or a samba. But when I first heard this bossa nova <laughs> above the gunshots, because I was in military training at the time, it caused me to go back to record a May, not to rewrite it, but to change the rhythm of the melody line in order to fit the bossa nova pulse. So Jobim had a profound effect on even the way that I proceeded with melodies that I already had going on in my brain, unquote. As Henderson became more experienced in the recording studio, he became known for only ever wanting to do one take. In fact, he would seldom agree to do a second take of a tune unless the first was deemed problematic due to some technical problem or like a musical calamity. He also preferred not to listen back to what he had recorded saying, quote, one thing that helps is that when the studio plays back the take, I'm outside somewhere. To hear it again is to play it again, and it just hastens boredom. So if we do have to do another take, I'll be fresh for new ideas. Unquote. Page One received mixed reviews upon its release, receiving two and a half stars in Downbeat. However, within Blue Note, there was tremendous excitement about the record. Alfred Lyon thought the album was so impressive that he released it before both Dorham's Una Moss and Grant Green's Am I Blue? even though both of these records were recorded first. This meant that the record-buying public would have first encountered Joe Henderson as a leader and then as a sideman. That's kind of interesting, you know, because the, the usual progression, the way that people meet artists is like, oh, yeah, he played on that record, he was on that band, and like, oh, yeah, now this guy's got his own record. But just because of the way they released these albums, it was like, boom, here's Joe Henderson, and now he appears on these other albums as well. During this time of prolific recording, Henderson was performing regularly with the Kenny Dorham Quintet and likely a number of other places around New York. However, there just aren't really many records of his performances. Uh, Henderson was not really one to keep records, date books, or indeed much in terms of personal effects at all. Even though Dorham was quite established in New York and Henderson was becoming a force in his own right, the two simply did whatever worked best for booking gigs. As Bob Blumenthal explains, quote, It was an exceptional example of a common jazz practice then and now in which two or more musicians with excellent individual skills but limited public recognition pooled their efforts and took jobs together under the name of whoever could get a gig, unquote. Basically what he's saying, uh, you know, they had this quintet and they would just like, if Kenny booked the gig, they'd just call it the Kenny Dorham quintet. Or if Joe booked the gig, it was, you know, called the Joe Henderson quintet or, or whatever, probably some combination of both of them. Henderson and Dorham were by this time not only musical colleagues, but close friends. About Dorham, Henderson said, quote, he was a delightful person, even off the bandstand, say when he and I were walking down the street just observing beautiful ladies or the day. The man was so full of so much intelligence. Kenny was definitely a musical genius that slipped through without being properly acknowledged for his contributions. In a few ways, Kenny was his own worst enemy, but all the musicians knew about him. He was like a musician's musician, which is a high compliment." Unquote. Henderson would go on to record several more sides for Blue Note, both as a leader and as a sideman with Dorham, Grant Green, Andrew Hill, Lee Morgan, and others. Notably, Henderson played on Lee Morgan's The Sidewinder, which was one of his greatest commercial successes. 
Henderson really showed his versatility during this time. His solos on Grant Green's idle moments are velvety and mellow with a real warmth of tone. And, you know, you can compare that with the, the sort of like emotional intensity he played with on Andrew Hill's Black Fire. In 1964, Alfred Lyons suggested that Horace Silver put together a new band. The pianist had released Silver's Serenade to somewhat tepid response and was looking for something fresh to finish the sessions for Song for My Father. Silver got Henderson, uh, trumpeter Carmel Jones, bassist Teddy Smith, and drummer Roger Humphreys together for a run of gigs starting at Crawford's Bar and Grill in Pittsburgh. The group played Fridays and Saturdays at Crawford's for several weeks, as well as dates in Westbury and Buffalo, New York. While this was an important time for the group in terms of getting into the spirit of, uh, you know, sort of the collective mind meld, it was also an important opportunity for Henderson as it meant reliable work and a newfound sense of financial freedom. From 1964 to 1966, Henderson made his work with Silver's group his priority, scheduling other opportunities around Silver's busy touring schedule, which was typically three weeks on, one week off at a time. Horace Silver had a couple of idiosyncrasies that I think Joe Henderson meshed with quite naturally. Silver preferred not to record more than two studio albums per year, which allowed him to focus on his compositions and ensure a high standard of output. I think this would have seemed quite natural for Henderson, who, who was also recognized for his writing and, and made composition such an important part of his career. Secondly, Horace Silver preferred to book his band in nightclubs rather than theater shows with split bills. This meant that the band would play for longer and could really stretch out, something which Henderson clearly took advantage of, uh, you know, with several of his prior Blue Note releases. If you think about uh, Idle Moments on Grant Green's uh, album, Idle Moments, it's, it's like nearly 15 minutes long. Uh, much of Henderson's album, Page One, most of the tracks are like over seven minutes in length. Uh, Una Moss is over 15 minutes long. So Henderson continued to work steadily with Silver, including a trip to France to play the Antibes Jazz Festival in July of 1964. Later that summer, Henderson had his first taste of significant recognition by the Jazz Cognoscenti, with a mention in Downbeat's International Critics Poll. He came in fourth place in the uh, Talent Deserving of Wider Recognition category for tenor saxophone. Interestingly, as Henderson was coming to the end of his time with Blue Note, he began to receive more positive press and his recordings were generally more warmly received. Like this quote from Don Nelson in, Don, in Downbeat about Henderson's playing on trumpet toccata. Quote, Henderson discourses at some length, but his inventive flight is economical and to the point. The pace is medium and Henderson lets the ideas roll out, linking one to another with deft control and little waste to the final note." Unquote. What's interesting about this is that Henderson's playing didn't really change significantly through this period, but he did, in my opinion anyway, but, but he did become a much more well-known figure, uh, particularly due to his touring with Horace Silver. This is maybe an example of a jazz critic reflecting public sentiment as opposed to genuinely reflecting critically upon the playing. Maybe that's a bit cynical, but uh, I don't know. It seems maybe possible to me. In the fall of 1964, Horace Silver took his quintet to the West Coast, where they performed at a number of prestigious venues, such as the Monterey Jazz Festival, 
the id club in la and the jazz workshop in san francisco most interestingly to me anyway the group played at the cyanon house in santa monica i don't know if you know about cyanon this is like this crazy west coast cult sort of thing um it started out, you know, the Anon part of it is kind of like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or, or Narcanon or whatever. Um, it, it was uh, it was one of the very first places for uh, junkies like heroin addicts to get any kind of treatment that wasn't just like, you know, go to jail and, and Turkey in jail. And uh, they had this thing that they called the game where they would sit around and, and just abuse each other, just verbally, just scream like the worst insults that they could come up with. And so this this thing kind of like it turns into a call and it grows. It, it was tremendously helpful, actually, for some people at the beginning, I should say. And it, it just grows so out of control uh, They they end up buying all these like uh, office supply manufacturers so they were like they were making like pens and pencils and stuff i think like for offices and that was kind of like one way they were funding their operation and i think maybe they also owned a bunch of gas stations at one point they tried to assassinate someone by putting a rattlesnake that they had removed the rattle in someone's mailbox they're they're wild uh, art pepper was a uh, was in sign on for a while uh in his book uh straight life he, he kind of talks about it at length. It's a, it's a pretty interesting, I mean, the whole book is crazy, but uh, that part in particular is pretty cool. And uh, if you're really curious about sign on, there's a, a podcast called Behind the Bastards that does like a two-part deep dive into sign on. You, you got to check it out. Like it's, it's just so wild, uh, especially if you like cult stuff. So, it, like Horace Silver is playing there in 1964 with Joe Henderson, and I'd, I'd love to know what that was like. That fall, Silver's group recorded Song for My Father, which was the most successful album of Horace Silver's career. The album actually has two different groups, one with Henderson and one without from a previous recording session. It's very likely that after hearing the enormous commercial potential of the track Song For My Father, Alfred Lyon was keen to release the new material and as a result, fill the rest of the album with older material from an earlier session in order to like get it on the shelves more quickly. Like, you know what I mean? Like they had recorded Song For My Father in, in the first session and he was like, this is such a banger. We got to get this out. So like just fill the album with like whatever we have from old sessions, or, you know. Or maybe they just couldn't get the players together. That nobody really knows. So all of the music for this album was written by Silver, except for The Kicker, which was written by Joe Henderson. This was no doubt a significant windfall for the saxophonist in terms of royalties, considering the commercial success the album saw. Throughout his life, Henderson was known as an intensely private person who kept to himself and had a very small ring of friends with whom he confided. This reserved nature earned him the nickname The Phantom. While it's on tour with Horace Silver, trumpeter Carmel Jones actually quit the band because he found Joe's nearly reclusive nature to be just like too off-putting to be around. <laughs> About Henderson's nickname, uh, Michael Koskuna, who is the founder of Mosaic Records, uh, says of Henderson, quote, Joe is the Phantom in a lot of ways. Number one, he's one of those guys that's comfortable with himself. He could be alone for weeks and be comfortable with his own company and his own thoughts. He didn't need a lot of other people. 
He didn't need social stimulus. He was his own universe. I never talked to him about this, but I would suspect that was because he came from such a ridiculously massive, large family, where privacy was probably not at a premium, but impossible. When he got out on his own, he was very private, very secluded. I think that informed a lot of his life, unquote. Remember, like he had, what was it, 13 or 14, possibly, no one knows, brothers and sisters, like to get a little bit of privacy was probably like, whoa, man, you know, so I can, I can dig why he would be so into that as a, as an adult. Uh, incidentally, uh, when Carmel Jones quit uh, Horace Silver's band, Woody Shaw uh, took over that spot on the tour. So late in 1964, Henderson had a break from Horace Silver's busy schedule and recorded his fourth album as a leader for Blue Note. Inner Urge was Henderson's first album as a quartet without a trumpet or other wind voice up front. About the tune Inner Urge, Henderson said, quote, I was consumed by an inner urgency which could only be satisfied through this tune. During that period, I was coping with the anger and frustration that can come of trying to find your way in the maze of New York and of trying to adjust to the pace. You have to set in hacking your way in that city in order just to exist. Now I'm calmer, but this tune represents a particular stage in my life, unquote. So if you're working on inner urge and it's like making you feel uh, uptight and uh, frustrated, you know, I guess that was uh, that was Joe Henderson's intention when he wrote it. <laughs> of his five releases for Blue Note, the last three, In and Out, Inner Urge and Mode for Joe, are very different to his first two, Page One and Our Thing, at least to my ear. Page One and Our Thing sound like uh, like party records or club records or something with funky grooves and a kind of like danceability about them. The next three albums feel like heavier artistic statements, particularly Inner Urge, which was recorded as a quartet. It's unknown if recording Inner Urge as a quartet was was designed by the label to sort of invite uh, like comparisons between Joe Henderson and, and John Coltrane or Sonny Rollins. But it feels natural, particularly uh, since since McCoy Tyner and Elvin Jones, uh, who recorded uh, Inner Urge, uh, would record uh, A Love Supreme with John Coltrane, like only nine days later. So you could see how, you know, a conniving record head like uh, Alfred Lyons, not to say he's conniving, but... You know, someone like that might realize oh, over at Impulse, they've got the, you know, this thing going on with John Coltrane. He's playing in this quartet. Like, why, why don't we put out our own big tenor man quartet album? You know, just to, you know, it's probably just good business, right? Mode for Joe, with its larger ensemble and more arranged sections, almost feels like a, a capstone for this time, his time uh, at Blue Note Records, that is. It seems to me that this trajectory was probably just the natural progression of an artist coming into a label, making something that sells pretty well, becoming more widely known, and as a result, gaining more trust and space for doing their own thing. You know what I mean? Like, most record labels aren't going to let you have the, the larger ensemble on your first record. They're, they're going to make you, you know, put out something maybe a little more widely palatable, and then then later on you can make... You know, they have your artistic statements and, and you can bring in more musicians and, and that sort of thing. And, and so over the course of those five records at Blue Note 
at Blue Note Records, I've, I feel like you can really see that uh, kind of trajectory charted out. It's important to mention also that uh, all throughout the time that Henderson was making these classic records for Blue Note as a leader, he was also recording with, with other Blue Note artists like Lee Morgan and Grant Green. And he was also doing some away dates with Atlantic artists like Nat Adderley and Joe Zawanul. Uh, and he was also performing and touring with Horace Silver steadily until he quit the band in 1966. Henderson uh, quit Silver's band on stage in the middle of a set at the San Francisco Jazz Workshop. According to an explanation given to Downbeat, drummer Roger Humphrey's playing was, quote, thwarting his solos, <laughs> whatever that means. Uh, though this seems maybe a bit extreme to leave such a prestigious gig over, you know, just like a, you have a bad night and, and you got to quit. It's likely that this blow up had probably been brewing for a while. Henderson had asked Silver for a three month leave of absence in order to put together a recording group. But uh, but Horace Silver said no. He declined, um, saying that it wouldn't be possible to get a new sideman trained up with the repertoire before Henderson would be due back. He's basically like. Well, I'd love to give you the time off, Joe, but, uh, you know, by the time somebody learns your book, uh, you'll just be back. So I tell you what, why don't you just stay on board and uh, we won't have any problems. <laughs> yeah, like that's going to go over well. It is worth noting that uh, Silver did give Henderson the opportunity just to leave the group, uh, you know, when he wouldn't give him the time off. But, uh, but Joe did elect to stay, stay with the pianist. So after quitting Silver's band, Henderson was at a bit of a loose end, and so he went back to New York, where he put together a big band with Kenny Dorham. Henderson described finding the players, quote, Kenny and I put a big band together somewhere around 1966, right after I left Horace Silver. There was a bunch of musicians that were around in the New York area getting into all kinds of things they shouldn't, just being involved in that dissipating lifestyle only because they had nothing to do. So the big band filled that gap and gave them something to do, unquote. Uh, so far from, uh, you know, just being like a humanitarian outfit to keep, uh, you know, wayward jazzmen on the straight and narrow, uh, this band met three afternoons a week, primarily to workshop Henderson's compositions. He made it a point of always bringing in new ideas for the group to read at every rehearsal, no matter their state of finish. Word of the uh, of the high standard of work going on in the sessions, and uh, you know, spread really fast, and and pretty soon uh, Henderson and Dorham had a real who's who of New York jazz musicians in the group, uh, including like Lou Soloff, Curtis Fuller, Pepper Adams, Chick Corea, Ron Carter, Roy Haynes, and Joe Chambers. So you know, like pretty good group, right? Uh, Toward the end of 1966, Henderson was hired to play on the soundtrack of Michelangelo Antonioni's film Blow Up, uh, and, and this involved a pretty, uh, a somewhat deceptive caper, you might say. So Herbie Hancock was hired to put together the score for the film, but because it was being filmed in England, for tax purposes, he was required to use musicians from the British Commonwealth. Uh, Herbie Hancock explains, quote, I told Antonioni I would fly to Canada, which is, you know, part of the British Commonwealth, 
and record the music there with Canadian musicians. And I did in fact fly to Toronto and make recordings there, even though I knew already we weren't going to use them. I never told the Canadian guys that, of course, but as soon as I could, I hopped on a flight from Toronto to New York. In New York, I got all the top musicians into the studio as fast as I could. Jack DeJanet, Ron Carter, Freddie Hubbard, Joe Henderson. We recorded the score and I put those tapes in the boxes marked Canada and then flew back to London. I handed them over to Antonioni and as soon as he listened to them, he knew, is that Joe Henderson? He asked, his eyes lighting up. And Jack DeJanet? He was such a huge jazz fan, he could tell who was playing by the sounds of their instruments and the way they played. I felt bad misleading the Canadian musicians, but in the 60s, there really was a vast gap between the quality of American jazz musicianship and that of the rest of the world. In order to give Antonioni the level of music he wanted, I had no choice but to use New York musicians, who fortunately didn't care a thing about getting credit. Eventually, when the blow-up soundtrack was released, the New York musicians were listed on it, so the secret was out, but for a long time, only Antonioni and I knew. Unquote. And that's uh, that's Herbie Hancock speaking again. So that's pretty cool. He like uh, because of some weird tax business rule, he had to use you know people from the from the Commonwealth, but he just kind of pulled a fast one. <laughs> At the beginning of 1967, Henderson, who was somewhat fresh off leaving Horace Silver, joined Miles Davis's band for four months. This stint included performances at the Village Vanguard, the Philadelphia Arena, and the Civic Opera House in Chicago. While also leading, you know, he's also like leading his own group, uh, and they're playing at places like the Five Spot and Slug Saloon. Unfortunately, Miles Davis and Joe Henderson never went into the studio together. Miles had asked Joe to put together a recording date, but as Joe explains, quote, Miles asked me to put together a record date for him. But I was so into whatever, whatever it was I was doing that I never got around to doing it. And it's something I keep kicking myself for. We never recorded, and I don't think anybody's got tapes of the gigs we did. At the time the gig came along, I had seven, eight of my own albums out, and, and I was on so many others. So it was kind of anticlimactic, which was unfortunate, because something I had always wanted to do was make music with the Prince. Unquote. 1967 also saw a significant change for Henderson, with the saxophonist leaving Blue Note Records after recording five albums in five years as the leader for the label. Although he, he does return to Blue Note uh, to record McCoy Tyner's The Real McCoy early in the year. Uh, he signed with Milestone Records, which was founded only a year prior in 1966. His first release for Milestone was The Kicker, which featured Kenny Barron, Ron Carter, and Louis Hayes. Uh, Mike Lawrence and Gracken Moncur III also played trumpet and trombone, uh, respectively, on a few tracks. The album starts off very much still in the model of sort of 60s, blue note, funky club music. And it's interesting that Joe moved to a new label, but continued doing stuff that wouldn't sound out of place, you know, either with Kenny Dorham or with Horace Silver, really. The main differences here are that the tunes are significantly shorter than on his previous releases, and there are more standards. And I think on that album, he's got Chelsea Bridge, Nardis, Without a Song, and uh, OMR and Pass, and uh, Joe Beam, Blossom. 
The standards that Henderson recorded on this album are interesting and that three of them could be seen as sort of foreshadowing to the albums that that he would put out on Verve Records in the in the early 90s. You know, those uh, like kind of tribute albums. So he uh, he recorded Nardis on this one, which uh, uh, you know corresponds with uh, "So Near, So Far," "Musings for Miles." He recorded Chelsea Bridge, which obviously corresponds with "Lush Life," the music of Billy Strayhorn, and then "Oamor and Paz," uh, which is kind of like a, you know the double rainbow, um, the music of Antonio Carlos Jobim album that he did. It's also a bit curious that Henderson had already recorded each of his original compositions on the album, uh, on the albums on earlier dates. In the summer of 1967, Henderson was one of the three H's, uh, that's Freddie Hubbard, Lewis Hayes, and Joe Henderson, that formed a group called The Communicators. The group played Tuesdays through Sundays at La Boheme in New York for much of that summer. For all the work that Henderson did at Blue Note and Milestone that was in a somewhat similar vein, Henderson was certainly not opposed to new approaches. In September of 1967, he recorded a two-saxophone duet version of You Don't Know What Love Is with Lee Konitz for uh, Konitz's album Duets. That's where he plays like duets with uh, you know a bunch of different people. It's a cool album. And... So Henderson credits Konitz with being an early influence on him, saying, quote, When I first started playing the sax formally, I used to favor the high register, you know, because I used to listen to Lee Konitz quite a bit. I used to listen to the alto sax. I was always trying to get this sound, unquote. Duets received a somewhat rare five-star review and downbeat with Dan Morgenstern saying, uh, quote, If you get only one record this year, make it this one, unquote. I think that's kind of funny that it was like such a hit because it's uh, it's like kind of an odd album. Like, you know, there's there's a two saxophone version of If You Don't Know What Love Is. It's all these kind of it's not random duets, but it's it's not like, you know, you don't get five tunes that are all kind of in the same vein and the band is the same on each one. It's it's just a very it almost feels like a compilation album, like a collage of different Lee Konitz ideas. For the rest of 1967 and the first couple of months of 1968, Henderson toured with the Jazz Communicators. That's the uh, the three H's, yeah. Often playing multiple day residencies with the group. Sadly, this was pretty much the end of uh, you know jazz groups getting this kind of steady work as the industry you know was was pressured by uh, you know the demand for rock music and 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 really this is kind of signaling a little bit of the end of uh, jazz's dominance. On April 14, 1968, Henderson ventured in a new direction musically, performing at Carnegie Hall in a sextet with Alice Coltrane, Pharoah Sanders, Jimmy Garrison, and two drummers. Uh, that's Rashid Ali and Jack Dijonette. And this was on a concert billed as Cosmic Music. If you've been following Henderson's career up to this point, you'll quickly recognize that this is a pretty major departure. Up until now, he's been mainly doing the, the Blue Note thing, and, and this quote-unquote cosmic music is just, it's just coming from like a totally different place, right? It fulfills a different role in both its intention and its performance. I think for Alice Coltrane, this music was, was like a form of devotion, really. Um, incidentally, 
Alice Coltrane was born in 1937, the same year as Joe Henderson, and grew up in Detroit and, uh, and was familiar with Joe from his Detroit days. Alice grew up performing organ in the churches in the area that feature sort of, you know, the call and response devotional music more associated with churches in the South. But, uh, you know, there was the one that she went to in uh, Detroit anyway, also did that. So she recalls an early episode where, quote, the Lord just completely swept through, unquote, leading to people like fainting and, and being carried out to be looked after by nurses. So this is, you know, this is the kind of place that Alice Coltrane and, and her music is coming from. It's quite different to sort of recording efficiently, making choices with record producers as to what gets released and, and that sort of thing. Also, another interesting sidebar, Alice Coltrane went to school with Marvin Gaye. She was two years older than him. Uh, I think of a lot of us just like can't really fathom what Detroit must have been like before everything rusted and, and just went to shit. Like what a remarkably culturally rich place it was and how much music the city spawned. So not much is known about how Henderson felt about music coming from this sort of place. By nature, he's very reserved anyway, so it's, it's unlikely that he would have really shared anything that, uh, that he would have been feeling emotionally or spiritually about the music. Alice Coltrane described the difference in playing between uh, Henderson, that's, you know, between Joe Henderson and Pharaoh Sanders uh, on, on her album, uh, I guess it's called Ptah El Daoud, <laughs> which was recorded later uh, in 1970 uh, by saying, quote, Joe Henderson is more on the intellectual side, while Pharaoh is more abstract, more transcendental, unquote. This duality is made even more apparent since Sanders is recorded on the right channel and Henderson on the left, as if to spatially represent this, this kind of dichotomy between them. That would come later, though. For now, this 1968 concert was just kind of a one-off blip in the saxophonist's schedule. A week later, Henderson played a concert with the Winton Kelly Trio in Baltimore. This concert was recorded and released much later in 1991 on Verve, uh, Verve simply titled Four. The Winton Kelly Trio had been together since 1959 when it was the rhythm section for the Miles Davis Quintet. And this album is largely standards like Autumn Leaves, Straight No Chaser, and On Green Dolphin Street. Henderson's technical ideas are on full display here, and to my ear, his style of developing motivic ideas is, is just perfectly matched by this like super seasoned rhythm section. The interplay you know, between the soloist and the rhythm section is, is really happening at a, at a high level. So that's, that's the album called Four, which was released on Verve in 1991, even though it was recorded in like 1968, I think it was. I just mentioned that Alice Coltrane described Henderson and his playing as being, quote, more on the intellectual side, unquote. This intellectual streak is something that ran deeply through Henderson's life. Many musicians who knew him and toured internationally with him said that he spoke many languages fluently. Pianist Joanne Brackeen uh, claimed to have counted 17 of them, which seems like a bit unlikely to me. Uh, but saxophonist Pete Yellen claims that Henderson spoke fluent French and German, sorry, French and Spanish, and had a strong knowledge of uh, Portuguese and that he was also studying Japanese. 
Henderson's album Tetragon, recorded in 1968, contains a track titled The Bead Game, which is a reference to a fictional game played by the characters in Herman Hesse's novel Magister Ludi. Though the rules of, the, of this game are never fully explained in the book, it is made clear that the goal is the creation of a, a sort of universal understanding through the use of symbols to interweave several philosophical disciplines. This book is a kind of like tribute to intellectualism and was a longtime favorite of Henderson's. About the book, he said, Magister Ludi was not to be sacrilegious like a Bible to me. I thumbed through the pages regularly and turned other people onto the book. It meant so much to me, but not too many other people mention it. Isn't it unfortunate that so few people are reading? All of a sudden, it's like the written word has become taboo. All musicians should expose themselves to literature. That's, <laughs> I don't know why I said literature, literature. There's influence to be gained from that, unquote. Henderson was also known to study classical music and to work on classical excerpts on the saxophone. I think that means uh, he was uh, like taking orchestral excerpts, you know, like violin excerpts, not uh, classical saxophone excerpts. He was a heavy practicer and also studied piano. In fact, in both New York and San Francisco, he was working a bit as a pianist in bars and things. It's likely that these places that hired him like didn't really know that he was a major jazz artist on the saxophone and just thought that he was like, a, you know, he's a pretty good pianist that the patrons like. And, and so they give him a few bucks to come in and play when, you know, when his schedule permitted. It was just like a like a side gig that he did uh, playing piano. Henderson was also known to have a photographic memory and to do crosswords and other puzzles frequently. This kind of continuous mental training combined with his reserved nature gave him like a kind of aesthetic, uh, quasi-monastic quality about his lifestyle. In 1968, Henderson spent a good chunk of the year in Europe. He had a four-week residency at Ronnie Scott's in London, where his band featured Kenny Wheeler, Dave Holland, and Tony Oxley. Dave Holland left the group shortly to join uh, Miles Davis' band. On that tour, he also performed at the Mulde, Mulde Jazz Festival in Norway, Jazzhus Montmartre in Copenhagen, and Le Chat Qui Pêche in Paris. He also recorded a, a TV appearance with Lee Konitz in Vienna. At the end of 1968, Henderson had his next major opportunity, and that was joining Herbie Hancock's Sextet. His first recording with Hancock was the Blue Note release, The Prisoner, which had Henderson playing flute and alto saxophone as well as his usual tenor. Hancock had recently left Miles Davis and was looking to make more, uh, shall we say, accessible music. Uh, I think that's actually a direct quote from him. Uh, the album The Prisoner is exactly this. It's, it's got lush orchestrations, sweeping flute lines, easy grooves. It, it was received extremely well and earned five stars from uh, Harvey Picard and Downbeat. In 1969, Henderson also briefly joined the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra and toured in Europe with a, a week residency at Ronnie Scott's and other performances in Sweden, Denmark, Germany, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Switzerland. Throughout the year, Henderson kept a busy schedule juggling work with uh, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, uh, Herbie Hancock, and his own recording and touring dates, 
as well as work with uh, with many others as a sideman, both on stage and in the studio. 1970 was the year that Henderson recorded the already mentioned Ptah El Daoud. <laughs> I, I guess that's how you say it. Uh, I, I've listened to that album for years and never known how you say it. Ptah, Ptah, Daoud. I, I don't know. Uh, and that was with uh, Alice Coltrane. And uh, he also recorded that year, which uh, 1970, he also recorded Freddie Hubbard's Red Clay. Although Henderson was with Herbie Hancock for two years, the group didn't work a ton. Uh, Hancock was new as a band leader and was just kind of getting things together under his own name. So work was, was sporadic for the first couple of years, which was a contributing factor to Henderson's departure in 1970. Basically, there just you know there just wasn't enough work uh, to sustain being in that band full time. After leaving Hancock's band, Henderson largely focused on his own work and recording and performing with his own band, uh, which included Woody Shaw, pianist George Gables, bassist Reggie Johnson, and Lenny White. This band this band would become somewhat loose in years to come, with people rotating in and out frequently. This is also the beginning of Henderson going somewhat into obscurity. His music was becoming freer as well. Pete Yellen explains, quote, He had this attitude of, when you get to the bandstand, that's when you try stuff out. It didn't necessarily have to be a finished project. He'd, sometimes he'd sing a bass line to Stanley Clark, who was playing bass at the time, and the tempo would start, and he'd just start playing, unquote. In the early 70s, work was piecemeal for, for Henderson's groups. This meant that players were coming and going frequently as, I mean, you know, it's, it's just hard to support yourself when you're not working regularly. It's also a time when more and more players were experimenting with rock and fusion stuff, and the scene itself was becoming just sort of generally more fragmented, it seems to me. Henderson toured Japan and made a couple of recordings with Japanese pianist Hideo Ichikawa, bassist Konimitsu, Konimitsu Inaba, and drummer Motohiko Hino. Uh, yeah, well done me for maybe getting those right. I don't know. He was well received in Japan. Uh, you know, I think we all know that uh, Japan sort of stereotypically has a has a deep love of jazz and, and has continued really to, uh, to love that music. Um, you know, I think of uh, Art Pepper going there in like, what was it, like the 80s and, and being really well received. And, and still now, you know, there's a there's a Blue Note Club in Tokyo, I think. And so after returning from uh, positive experiences in Japan, Henderson joined Blood, Sweat and Tears, uh, which was an experience that can best be described by Joe himself. Uh, he said, quote, it was more like an abortion than anything else. We were together for four months. You know, I think they abort babies at just three months, unquote. <laughs> Henderson's gripes with the band seem to be largely business-related and logistical. He said, quote, So anyway, after two months, the singer got fired. Then, after another month, one of the arrangers who had stayed on from the old band decided he wanted, wanted to leave. That meant we had to find a new arranger and organizer. It was just a series of setbacks that caused me to lose interest. Despite all the money I was supposed to have made, you know, every year for a couple of years, 
My share of the corporation was supposed to be over $200,000 a year, but since I've never had that, I couldn't really relate to it. How could you relate to the mumps if you've never had the mumps? They were a bunch of nice guys, and they seemed to have a nicely organized corporation going on, but they used to get a lot of flack from the other musicians. Musicians would come up and act very belligerent toward them because they had this image of being a jazz group, and a lot of people just couldn't take that, so they got self-conscious about it. They started looking around for jazz personalities, plus they had no blacks in the group, so they got me there. I was sort of a three-in-one oil for them. I was black, I had a rep as, a, as an improvising musician, and there were soul possibilities there, unquote. So it's a pretty, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack in there. <laughs> he goes on to describe how other jazz musicians reacted to him joining the group. Quote, a lot of people were really drugging me for that. Well, you sold out, mother. <laughs> Damn, why are you going there? A lot of people called me, called me all, all over the world. Did you really go with blood, sweat, and tears? At the same time, I couldn't get gigs for my six-piece band, so I disbanded. The minute I disbanded, they called me to join the band. It happened one day to the next. On the aesthetic level, I was looking at it as a chance to be around five horns. I was looking at the arranging, overdubbing, and all the musical possibilities. It wasn't until that time that I realized there were people out there who maybe know who I was. Wow, Joe, you do things, man, and people start to wonder. I've never been on any kind of ego trip, but at that point I said to myself, wow, it's all very interesting. And here all this time I couldn't even get a write-up and downbeat. Uh, that's a pretty far-ranging quote. But it must have been really tough for Joe. Like he's, uh, you know, he's in this situation where he's struggling to find work with his own group, and he can't really keep a, keep a band together because he, you know, like he just doesn't have enough dates to pay the guys. And then he gets this opportunity, which on the face of it seems, you know, maybe musically interesting, and, and it's certainly hugely lucrative. And that's, you know, to join Blood, Sweat and Tears. So so he joins and it's just like it's just a shit show, uh, organizationally speaking. And the other players from the jazz world are like dragging him. And he must have just thought, like, you know, what am I supposed to do? I, I imagine another another part of him must have thought, like, what's going on here? Nearly everyone is experimenting with some kind of jazz fusion rock bastard hybrid thing. And when when I get involved, I get dragged. Like, what's that about? So Henderson summed up the whole experience nicely saying, quote, as I said, they were nice cats, but I kind of lost interest. The whole thing just didn't get off the ground. I'm not used to taking two months to make a record. I do it in one day. I was trained to do that shit in one take, unquote. Although it didn't work out with blood, sweat and tears, one influence from the extensive time spent in the studio with that group was an interest in overdubbing and other studio trickery, shall we say. Henderson recorded the album Black is the Color in 1972, which is an album filled with synthesizers and overdubs that act like, you know, choruses of soprano saxophones and echoes of the main lines. This album was recorded at Mercury Sound Studios, which allowed Henderson to use a 16-track recorder. He would, uh, his process was, apparently, he would come in with his group and record the basic structures of the tunes, and then he would take the, the tapes home and uh, like study them, and then he would come back with, with these highly detailed notes and outlines for additional parts that he wanted to add. Henderson worked this way for about two years, and 
I think it's always cool when artists progress, and I don't think they or anyone really should be dogged for changing their minds about things or, or going back on what they've said previously. But I do think it's a little bit funny that he left blood, sweat, and tears, uh, you know, saying, I'm used to making records in one day, you know, the one take thing. And then he immediately starts making his his own records in kind of the same way that Blood, Sweat, and Tears was, you know, where they're taking all this time and overdubbing and using all this uh, studio manipulation. Throughout the mid-70s, Henderson's working life isn't very well documented. He hired pianist Joanne Brackeen in 1972, and she recalls doing loads of tours with Henderson, both in the U.S. and in Europe. It seems that during this time, Henderson was just kind of grinding out gigs and, and playing a lot, but not really appearing on the national scene or in the press. Uh, Brackeen describes the band as not necessarily playing a lot of tunes on a gig, but each one having very long solos, often in the 20 to 25 minute range. During this time, Henderson was also known for traveling as a solo artist and just playing with whatever rhythm section was at hand, much like, uh, you know, like Lee Konitz is known for doing that. And uh, Sonny Stitt was was like especially known for doing that. I think they didn't they call him the lone wolf even. It's easy to imagine someone with a super reserved and private nature like Henderson just really enjoying the anonymity of solo travel, just like reading his book or, or whatever on the way to the gig and then, you know, going back to the hotel alone after not really needing to interact with the guys on the band too much because there'll be different players the next night. During this time, he also performed with the Gil Evans Orchestra and recorded on Bill Evans' album, Living Time, with uh, Jimmy Jufree, Sam Rivers, Garnett Brown, Eddie Gomez, and Tony Williams. The spring of 1973 saw Henderson move to San Francisco, a city where he had been performing regularly for years. One good thing from his brief stint in Blood, Sweat, and Tears was that he was basically able to buy a large house in San Francisco with the savings he accrued during his few months with the band. Henderson said that he wanted to withdraw from the hectic lifestyle associated with making the scene in New York, which is, you know, no doubt just a part of his uh, just kind of quiet nature. About the move, he said, quote, I moved to California because I was trying to make a nice, dignified withdrawal from the scene. And then my record company, Milestone, moved out west. So I figured I'd just do some records, maybe do a, a few special projects, go over to Japan occasionally, and maybe do a couple of George Ween's things. You know, that would be enough, unquote. He bought this really large house with several bedrooms, uh, but close acquaintances say that he only really lived in the dining room. He wanted to stop touring and get into teaching, possibly at a university, so he began a teaching practice out of the basement of his home. Apparently, he was not exactly a natural pedagogue. Eddie Gomez described his rather unorthodox teaching style, saying, quote, When the students came in on the ground floor, he let them in. There was a basement apartment, so they would never come upstairs to the regular house level. He'd just go let them in and put them in like a dungeon. And then he'd come upstairs and we'd finish our conversation. But he'd just write out maybe a line of music and have them practice for a half hour. And then he'd go back downstairs and collect the money and the next student would come in. When he'd be upstairs talking to me the whole time during the lesson well, supposed lesson. He might go upstairs and do a crossword puzzle, but you could hear the student downstairs, and then he'd go down, and I'd heard him say, quote, 
on a professional level, you sound good, <laughs> unquote. Throughout the mid-70s, Henderson continued to record records for Milestone, both under his own name and as a sideman. He also recorded a second album, The Elements, with Alice Coltrane, and traveled to New York to record with Ron Carter. He did a bit of international touring, but nothing like in previous years. In 1975, Downbeat did the first feature interview with Henderson ever. Think about that for a minute. This was a major tenor player who has recorded with nearly everyone on the scene, has loads of albums under his own name that are frequently getting solid reviews in the same publication, and is consistently placing in the magazine's annual polls, and he's never had a feature story done on him. It's just like, it's just odd. I can't really explain it. The interview with Pete Townley is perhaps telling of why the magazine hadn't focused on him until this point. Townley suggests that after hearing Henderson play, he thought the saxophone sounded like Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane. It's the same thing again, right? Personally, I've never understood what people mean when they say this. Like, how can you sound like both Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane, right? I don't think those two sound alike. Anyway, maybe this was just like the view at Downbeat, and, and maybe that explains you know why he didn't uh, have that much coverage. So this was, a, this was a pretty consistent gripe of Henderson's that people, people thought that he wasn't like an original voice. And, and so he responded to Townley's suggestion saying, quote, Of the saxophone players that I've heard recently say within the last two or three years, more sound like me than any other player around. Granted, I'm not hearing every saxophone player around. At one point, Sonny Rollins influenced me quite a bit, but I think the same people who also influenced Nuke also influenced me. As a result, we both came out of sort of the same same place. Naturally, I can appreciate him. Wow, it's like seeing somebody walk down the street who looks exactly like you, but has a different mother and a different father, all total. You dig? But I strongly feel that as recently as five, six, maybe seven years ago, I developed elements about my own playing that are very uniquely my own. In that response, you can hear Henderson saying, no, I don't think I sound like them. And in fact, many players are copying my style. And, and this was a point of contention for Henderson for decades to come, uh, which sort of culminated in, in like a pretty ugly incident with Michael Brecker uh, later down the road. A lot of people who were playing with Henderson and who knew him in the late 80s and early 90s say that he was a bit disgruntled or, or disappointed that he wasn't really receiving the attention and awards that many of the younger generation of players were getting. Uh, and in particular, talking about Michael Brecker, uh, who was known to love Henderson's playing and, and to have taken a lot from it. Michael Bourne, a journalist and on-air personality at WBGO in Newark, did an interview with Henderson, which was intended to sort of like boost the saxophonist profile, uh, but it all kind of went awry. In the interview, it came out that Henderson was feeling kind of salty toward Brecker and, and felt that Brecker was kind of getting credit for some of the innovations that Henderson had brought to the art form. So uh, after, after this interview, they, they decided that the article was like, it was a bit too negative and it, it didn't do Henderson any service by naming names particularly. And so it went to print simply referring to Brecker as, as something generic like uh, a younger player. Then a couple of months later, one of the major jazz rags came out with a similar interview where Henderson did name names, specifically Brecker. 
And apparently Michael Brecker was just totally crushed by this. Um, he was so hurt by the remarks that in all the liner notes of his, of pretty much, I think, all of his future records, he was always sure to put Joe Henderson's name in a prominent place in the thank yous. And the, the controversy was never really resolved. But, but this happened just prior to Henderson's great commercial success uh, with Verve in the early 90s when, when Joe finally did get the accolades that, that he felt were due. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of a, just kind of an ugly stain, really. In 1976, Henderson left Milestone Records and began a period of relative obscurity. During this time, he basically continued to live off the money he made during his brief time with Blood, Sweat, and Tears and performed occasionally. Uh, it's easy to imagine Henderson, who is known to be a somewhat obsessive practicer, just shedding away at home, dividing his time between his horn and his books with the occasional student or brief tour thrown in the mix. It's worth noting that while this period was considered a lull by Henderson standards, for many musicians whose creative output during this time would be considered a high watermark, he was still recording and touring with, you know, the likes of like Freddie Hubbard, Chick Corea, Woody Shaw, Mal Waldron, and others. Just, you know, not at the frequency or in, or in such a high profile way. Henderson did eventually achieve his goal of teaching music in a university setting. So it seems that he must have figured out that there's more to teaching than, you know, like locking students in your basement with a few bars of music you've hastily written for them to learn. On a side note, uh, you know, we all have funny stories about stuff our teachers did and Joe's students' tales must be just just great, right? So anyway, he taught uh, at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music from 1978 to 1982. And I wish that there was more information about what Joe was like as a teacher, but there, there just doesn't really seem to be that much out there. I suppose that probably means he was just sort of a normal teacher at the conservatory. And, you know, it's probably hard to be too much of a weirdo with, with other faculty around all the time. Although I guess we all have weird stories about certain faculty members from our music schools. So who knows, really? I did find a few people on the uh, on the Saks on the Web forum who corroborated the stories of, of Joe having students working on things in different rooms of his house and that he would periodically drop into each room to see how they were doing. Like, it's kind of odd, but yeah, it's kind of cool in a way. So in 1986, Henderson put together a band with an all-female rhythm section, which is, you know, something practically unheard of at the time. Women are still underrepresented in jazz and, and we're, what, like uh, 40 years on from, from him doing this. So speaking about why he did this, Henderson said, quote, Over the past five years or so, I've started to do things in projects, and this is one of them. I set the band up because the people were talented and I strongly believed in them. I wasn't trying to make any kind of statement. When we played Paris, the club was packed with a bunch of musicians. Several of them came down and said, Joe, when I first heard about you coming down here with these ladies, man, I thought this was just some kind of gimmick. But these musicians would be around for like 75% of the, of the set, and that's a proper endorsement. A lot of women all around Europe would come up and thank me. I didn't want to upset their apple carts, but I said these people wouldn't be in this band if they didn't take care of the needs of the music. I think the ladies in the band appreciated me saying that, unquote. 
it's kind of an interesting thing, this all-female band. In interviews about the band, Henderson only ever speaks about the quality of the playing of the women in his band. And there's never any hint that he did this for any publicity or, or as a gimmick. And yet, when people write about the group, even, even in like the really extremely well-researched and peer-reviewed dissertation that I'm pulling the most, you know, most of this information from, his intentions are, are sort of always questioned. And I'm not really sure what to make of that. It feels like, like on literally any other subject, we would just take him at his word, right? Any, anything he says consistently about his music, we would just assume that he's telling the truth, right? And, and I think, like, why don't we just take him at his word on this? Like, yeah, he made an all-female band, and he said he liked the way that they played, and that's why he hired him. Like, why does everyone kind of throw doubt that there was, you know, that there was this element of uh, sort of a publicity stunt there? You know, maybe it's, it's just that it was so unusual for a major soloist to hire an all-female band in the mid-80s that, that people feel like it has to be questioned or something. But I guess I come down on the side of, like, take him at his word. And, and in that view, it, it was just a very cool thing that he did, bringing more representation into the scene. And it certainly was interesting. In 1992, Henderson signed with Verve, which was treated as a major event. He suddenly became very famous, which was odd since he'd been on the scene for literally decades at that point. The first Verve recording was titled Lush Life, the music of Billy Strayhorn, and the recording featured Wynton Marsalis, Stephen Scott, Christian McBride, and drummer Gregory Hutchinson. Henderson, Henderson would record four of these nostalgic albums, which were you know, looking at the music of specific artists. This record cost about $28,000 to make, which was considered quite low for a major artist at the time. Interestingly, though, Verve decided to put a lot of money into marketing the album, in essence placing a big bet that Joe Henderson could be a major jazz figure again. Gary Giddens and, and Scott DeVoe also point out uh, how, many, how many musicians uh, recorded tribute albums of older musicians in this period, similar to Henderson's tributes to Billy Strayhorn and Miles Davis. They claim this movement was a reaction against the free aesthetics of the loft scene, suggesting that some musicians felt alienated by the, by the freedoms allowed within it, and that the, uh, the sort of conservatism of the Reagan years and the cuts in funding for arts programs all but assured this return to a more conservative aesthetic. The Lush Life album is, is quite interesting in that it features a, a variety of different ensemble configurations as well as a solo re recording. About the different accompaniment arrangements, Henderson said, quote, the variety of the compositions is approached in a variety of situations solos, duos, trios, quartets, and five pieces. So in this situation, my work becomes the unifying factor. That means that there are only two things that are consistent in this session, my sound and Billy Strayhorn's. Nothing else can be taken for granted." Unquote. Lush Life was the greatest commercial success of Henderson's life. No doubt the major advertising efforts had a strong influence but the combination of a major artist playing much-loved music by a well-known composer is usually a formula for success. Another interesting factor that may have contributed to the success of Henderson's Verve recordings was pointed out by Richard Seidel, 
who noted uh, who noted that the jazz world had recently experienced something of a void in the tenor saxophone department with the deaths of Dexter Gordon in 1990 and Stan Getz in 1991. The record was promoted uh, with an appearance on The Tonight Show and full-page articles, not just in jazz publications like Downbeat, but also in mainstream news sources like Time Magazine, Newsweek, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Henderson followed up the Billy Strayhorn album with similarly successful albums, uh, So Near, So Far, Musings for Miles, Double Rainbow, the music of Antonio Carlos Jobim, a big band album, and his interpretation of Gershwin's Poor Game Bass. These records brought him four triple crowns in the downbeat readers polls in the 1990s, where he, he placed first in the categories of Jazz Musician of the Year, Tenor Saxophone, and Jazz Album of the Year. About his uh, sort of newfound, or I guess you could say refound fame, Henderson said, quote, I guess I'm supposed to be so taken aback by all this late adulation, all of this acknowledgement that's coming down the pike now, and I am, but I'm busy doing what I've been doing all the time for over 20 years. I'd like to consider myself a pretty serious person about music, not overly serious to the point where the fun has gone from it. The game has been pretty good to me, and this is probably where I, why I'm here, unquote. I think he probably just felt like, uh, you know, he'd been producing music of this high caliber his entire career. So it probably seemed like almost kind of random that some record label had just decided to put all this effort into promoting him. And like now he's receiving all this praise and financial reward. He probably felt like it could have happened at any point in his career. And to be honest, I think that maybe it could have. As the 90s wore on, Henderson's health declined. Years of smoking and uh, just living on the road had taken their toll. He was taken into hospital in 1998 and suffered a stroke in 2000. He was finally diagnosed with emphysema. There's a really heartbreaking story about Henderson learning that he could no longer play the saxophone related by Jason Karansky. He said, uh, quote, Henderson's close friend, Mariko Kuajima Hops, uh, who was the saxophonist, who was with the saxophonist when he suffered his stroke, told writer Kevin Lynch about a time in 1999 when weeks, when after weeks of intensive physical therapy, Henderson asked her to bring him his saxophone. It took a half hour for him to assemble his own instruments, Hops recalled. He played a few phrases, then he stopped and just looked down at his knees. A few minutes later, he started to cry. When he couldn't realize he couldn't play anymore, Joe's life actually ended, unquote. Joe Henderson died age 64 on June 30th, 2001 in San Francisco from a heart attack due to complications caused by emphysema. He's buried in Dayton, Ohio. It's interesting I've spent the last three weeks kind of obsessing over Joe Henderson. I've read a ton about him, written over 12,000 words on his life and music. I spent many hours listening to his recordings. You can hear I'm losing my voice just from, from reading this. <laughs> it's been super rewarding for me to get inside these recordings, especially you know while doing the research like about what was going on in his life at the time. However, I still don't really feel like I know that much about his personal life. 
you know, with some artists, like we have all this great detail about their private lives, what they liked and didn't like, tons of anecdotes and all kinds of fun stories. I've read an exhausting account of his professional life assembled by uh, Joel Jeffrey Harris, but even that has relatively few details about his actual personal life. He was really just that private of a person. So there you have it. Uh, that's the life and times of Joe Henderson, as much as we're really able to know. Uh, so the thing I'm, I'm trying to do on all these podcasts is, is maybe just sum up with like a few things that I would recommend checking out. You know, Joe had just a huge catalog and it's all great. Uh, I, I haven't really come across anything in the past few weeks that I, I didn't like. Um, but the ones that I would I would check out would be all five of those those first Blue Note releases that he put out as a leader. I, I think they're all just just excellent albums. And uh, his big band album that he put out on Verve is really cool. It's just got some killer brass playing on it, too. I particularly like the album Mirror Mirror. It was a sort of a later one, but before he had all that Verve success. And uh, um, the Horace Silver album, The Cape Verdean Blues. I, I don't know what it is. I just I like the tunes on that album. It's just nice. So maybe check that stuff out. Maybe check out all of it. Um, as always, all the sources for this episode can be found at my website, andrewdmeyer.com. And uh, thanks very much for listening. And, you know, uh, please help me out. Tell your friends. Uh, if you like the podcast, uh, subscribe. And uh, if, you, if you leave a rating and, and comments, that, that really helps boost it up in the, uh, in the rankings and stuff. So thanks very much, and we'll see you next time on the Saxophone History Podcast. Mm-hmm.